All right, well, if you've been uh, with us the last few weeks, we're going to continue our series is coming. We've seen so far, as we've just explained Matthew again, we will be back there soon. But kind of what we've seen so far, as we've just explored things, starting in Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 3, and then we've moved on. We've gotten clarity over time, but we know there's one coming who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And we've seen, okay, he's going to come through the line of Abraham. He's going to come through the line of David. And then last week, we saw some new things uh, clarified. He's going to be born a child, yet he's going to be a king. He's the one who's coming, Emmanuel, God with us to sit on the throne of David, rule and reign over God's people forever. And he can rightfully be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it's that last title right there. Prince of Peace that we're going to explore a little bit more this morning. Uh, If you remember last week, even when we saw that, I said that would have been a startling title for these people in Isaiah's day to hear. They're a war-torn people. They're a war-threatened people. A people who really live life trying to avoid skirmishes with the people around them and trying to make sure that the nations that are their neighbors don't make good on the threats they've promised to them. They don't know peace. There was no peace. And so to hear this promise coming that the Prince of Peace is coming to deliver them, oh, what a joy that would have been. But we know from our time in the text last week, even very, very early in Isaiah, this is bigger than military physical deliverance. This is more than like nationalistic peace. Brothers and sisters, this is talking about something to do with our sin. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, we read it last week. Remember it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Deliverance from sin. The Prince of Peace hasn't just come and isn't just coming to deliver these people as a nation. No, he's coming to deliver them from their greatest problem, their most foundational problem, Our most foundational problem, the reality that we are sinners who desperately need to be freed from our sin. How in the world is God going to do that? How will we be delivered from our sin? That's the question that I want us to ask this morning. As we think about Jesus, the coming, the Prince of Peace, who's going to earn deliverance from our sin, how does that work? And I assume it's right right here, right now, at this moment where some of you will just Tune me out. Jesus. Thomas, we know how it works. It's it's Jesus. This is not my first Sunday in church. I've been to Sunday school one time before when I was a little kid. Like, I know how God delivers from sin. Jesus is the answer. But the reason we're going to explore this a little bit more this morning, Prince of Peace, that Jesus is coming to establish peace between God and man, that ought to be a little astounding to us and just a little bit shocking to us. Because if we don't know what's behind that answer, Jesus, yes, Jesus is the answer. Like, don't worry, I'm going to tell you that Jesus is the answer. But if we can't go deeper than that, or we don't know what stands behind that, then we don't know enough about Jesus. Well, that this morning, expecting your word to give us an answer. We come asking a question, expecting your word to give us an answer. We want to know, how is it that we can be saved from our sin? How is it that you've acted in the Lord Jesus to ransom us. Lord, would you tell us right now as we explore your word together this morning. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. 
All right, so if you would, go ahead and make your way over. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 34. You can turn there now. While you're headed there, I'm just going to set the stage for you a little bit. You'll remember Exodus, if you remember Exodus. The the Israelites come out of Egypt. They've been in slavery in Egypt. They're coming out. They come out. The Lord gives them the law. Starts in Exodus chapter 20. He gives them the law. I'm the Lord your God who's delivered you out of Egypt. Ten commandments, boom, and then everything else flows from that. So this guy named Moses, right? If you were listening a minute ago when we read John chapter 1, the law came through him. That's what it said. So he's up on Mount Sinai getting the law. Like the Lord's giving him the law. And while he's doing that, like literally in the midst of that, the people of Israel, who are these people who the law belongs to, um, yeah, they're breaking the law. Like while Moses is getting the law. And so after that's happened, that's really kind of comes to a climax in 32, the golden calf incident. And after that, chapter 33 starts, and the Lord says, okay, look, y'all are leaving here. Get off my mountain. Like, go from here. I'm going to take you into a different land. And hey, look, I'm not going with you, because if I go with you, I'll consume you, because y'all are a stiff-necked people. Moses intercedes for the people. Moses says, Lord, would you just please consider and remember that, hey, we, this nation, we are your people. And the Lord says, yes, I know you're my people. That's why I'm going to go with you, even though you are a stiff-necked people. I I will go with you, Moses. And then Moses responds to the Lord saying that in verse 15 of 33. Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up for here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Lord, Lord, you've got to go with us. And so the Lord responds, verse 17, this very thing you have spoken I will do for you found favor in my sight and I know you by name and Moses responds and says please show me your glory Lord would you manifest yourself to me if I found favor in your sight and me and you have a relationship would you show me your glory and the Lord responds in verse 19 and he says I will make all my goodness pass before you And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Okay, well, brothers and sisters, remember, even before we get to 34, we're trying to answer the question, how is it that the Lord is here even right there in 34? I'll be, the Lord is a God who's gracious and merciful. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious to. I'll be merciful to who I'll be merciful to. Like the Lord's sovereign grace and sovereign mercy is a huge step towards how in the world it would be that we're going to be forgiven of our sin. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to worry whether the Lord would be willing not to deal with these people like they deserve or whether he'd be willing to deal with us graciously like we don't deserve, like he would. It's his nature. It's as much a part of him as his name is the Lord. He's a God who's gracious and merciful. So that is the request. Moses says, Lord, will you show me your glory? The Lord promises, yes, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And then that happens in 34. So let's go to 34, 6. The Lord passed before him. And he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious. There it is. It, it's, it's in his character. In case you missed it in 33, he's restated it in 34. 
He's a God who's merciful and gracious, merciful and gracious, merciful and gracious. If you want to know if you cannot receive from God what you deserve, and you can instead receive something you don't deserve, a gift, his grace, the answer is yes, and it's yes is part of his character. As surely as his name is the Lord, he's willing to be gracious and merciful by his nature. It's in his character. It's who he is. He's slow to anger. It means he's patient. This is part of his character. It's part of his nature. He's, he's patient with us, even though he has every right not to be. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That means that he's, he's faithful. Like he's consistent in his love. He, he's not flaky and wishy-washy and changes with the weather. Like, no, his love towards his people is steadfast. Like, he keeps on loving us even when we don't keep on loving him like we ought to. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. That's what the word tells us. He's steadfast in his love. He abounds in it. He's, he's, he's faithful. Verse 7, he keeps steadfast love for thousands, by which the Bible seems to me for us to read that as he keeps it to the thousandth generation. So it keeps on and on. Like it, it doesn't know an end. His steadfast love continues and continues. It, it doesn't know bounds. He forgives. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. So you want to know, okay, how is it I can be delivered from my sin? There's part one of your answer. The Lord forgives. Like he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. This is how you can be delivered. Because the Lord's a forgiving God. But who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third. It means really clearly the Israelites had a hard time because the Lord's judged the sin before, he will judge it again. Like read the book of Judges. The Israelites had a hard time keeping that in mind. If you commit the sins of your fathers, you're going to be judged for them too because the Lord is, is showing you what he wants you to know about himself is I don't roll like that. I will by no means clear the guilty. It's not like I punish some people for their sins and other people I don't punish for their sins. I will not. As surely as I'm gracious and merciful, I will not clear the guilty. The guilty will not go unpunished. That's what it means for God to be just. That's what it means for God to be righteous. If God would clear guilt by sweeping it under the rug, he would not be just and he would not be righteous. Which brings us back to our question, how in the world are we delivered from our sin? If we have guilt, how is God going to deliver us from that? Because he just said, I'm not going to clear your guilt. Like, I will by no means clear your guilt. So seeing as this is who God is, how in the world can you be forgiven of your sins? The Old Testament answer is Christmas is coming. We're going to take a step towards that. Turn with me, if you would, over to Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet Jeremiah, 31st chapter. While you're turning there, let me just summarize the prophet Jeremiah by saying he's a lot like Isaiah. Judgment mixed with hope. Jeremiah is prophesying in the same place as Isaiah in the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah comes a little later down the road than Isaiah, though. Isaiah makes all these prophecies about the judgment that's coming 
Jeremiah actually lives to see it happen. <laughs> so he prophesies judgment, but it's even more imminent to him. There's this extra emphasis on the judgment that's coming, and it comes, even in Jeremiah's lifetime. But in the middle of this huge book of Jeremiah, which is so slam full of judgment, there are chapters of hope. And it's those chapters of hope where we're going to kind of center our attention this morning because we're trying to answer the question, how does this work? How is it that the Lord could forgive us of our sin? How's he going to deliver us from our sin? So let's go to Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to start reading for us in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greater sin no more. How is it that the Lord, the answer for us from our sin, the answer, verse 34, is that he will Forgive, there's that word again. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so now we've got to ask this question because we're good Bible readers who just read Exodus 34 and we know that the Lord will by no means pardon the guilty. So what's his plan? Like how is he going to forgive our iniquity and not remember our sins anymore without clearing us of our guilt? Which means without sweeping it under the rug like it's no big deal. How is he going to do that? And the answer is in verse 31. I'm going to make a new covenant. I will make a new covenant with my people. Verse 32. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's really, really good, brothers and sisters, because you know what happened to that covenant? They broke it. Like, like they immediately broke it. So again, this is, we just read about this in Exodus. While Moses is on the mountain getting that covenant, the original covenant, which starts out by saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And here's what this means for you. You shall have no gods before me. You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So don't do that. And while Moses is getting that law, the people get tired of waiting on Moses to come back and bring in the law, so they build a carved image of a golden calf and they're worshiping it while Moses is getting that law, like, do you think they broke the covenant or do you not think they broke the covenant? They broke it while they were being given it. They could not keep it. They had quite the problem keeping the covenant. They broke it immediately. But Jeremiah 31 says really clearly that, hey, God didn't have a problem keeping his part of the covenant because he says, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, 
the Lord's faithful. The Lord's holding up his part of the covenant. The problem is these people can't do it. Like they can't keep their end of the covenant. They cannot be faithful to what the Lord has called them to do and what the Lord's called them to restrain from doing. They refuse to do it. This is on them. They cannot do it. Israel has left Egypt when, we, when they get this, this Sinai covenant, the original covenant, they left Egypt in like 1444 B.C., 1446 B.C., somewhere in there. Jeremiah starts preaching in 627 B.C. Do you think 800 years is long enough to figure out that this original covenant isn't going to get it done? Like they can't keep it. They've tried and they've tried and they've tried again. The original covenant is not going to get it done. But there's good news. Here comes the good news in Jeremiah. And I'll write it on their heart. days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. And I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. In the old covenant, the people were dominated. They were owned by their inability to keep the law. By their inability to be faithful to the Lord. Jeremiah in chapter 17 writes, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved, engraved on the tablet of their heart. That's the message of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is these people were dominated by their inability to keep God's law. But in the New Covenant, it won't be like that. Verse 33 just tells you something's going to fundamentally change so that it won't be like that. In the New Covenant, the law of God isn't written on their hearts to condemn them. It's written on their hearts so that they can know him. They're going to they're gonna know me. Like, I'm going to put my law in them. And the result is going to be that I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's not a formality. The new covenant is it's not a formality. The relationship between God and his people is not a formality in the new covenant. Here's what's going on in the old covenant. You've got this little faithful remnant of people who are trying to actually strive to know the Lord. And you've got this huge number of people who bear the name Israel but really aren't Israel who are just kind of going along playing the game. And they don't know it. And so it's a functional marriage. It's like one of those marriages where you watch people make vows and they were all about it at the beginning, but then the years kind of go by and it just kind of grows cold. And instead of being people who love each other and enjoy each other, like, nope, they've moved out, they sleep in different bedrooms. If you want to carry the metaphor and make it more accurate, they actually like live in different houses. They shack up with different gods. Like the, the old covenant, the relationship between God and his people became a formality. They were tied to him because they had something to do with his name, but they didn't know him. Lots and lots of people bore the name Israel who didn't know him. And the Lord says, yeah, 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 not in the new covenant. New covenant won't be like that. New covenant is going to be inhabited by this people who really are my bride, who really do grow closer to me and sweeter to me as the years go by. It doesn't grow cold. It doesn't run out. It's not a formality. It's a living, dynamic, interactive relationship. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they will know me. Verse 34 continues that same idea. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. Like, they're not, not going to have to do that. You're not going to have to teach them that. Thomas, how presumptuous of you. Stand up here and teach us every week, sometimes three, four times a week. How presumptuous of you to teach us in the new covenant. It's not the point. You're not going to have to teach them in the new covenant 
to know the Lord. God's people still need teachers, but God's people in the new covenant don't need people to teach them to know the Lord. We call that evangelism now. Everybody who belongs to this new covenant, like everybody who's one of God's people via the new covenant knows God, has a relationship with God. His law is written on their hearts by the person work of the Holy Spirit. We're not gonna teach them in the new covenant to know the Lord because for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Christmas is coming. We're waiting. We're waiting on something to happen. We're waiting on the new covenant. We know that now because the Lord has said, I'm willing to forgive sins. I'm a God who's gracious and merciful. You don't have to worry about that. And then you turn to Jeremiah 31 and you take it one more step I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And here's how that happens. The Old Testament answer to how that happens is not found in the Old Testament. It's pointed to in the Old Testament. And it is the answer that Jeremiah has given you. There's a new covenant coming. There's something coming. Christmas is coming. And brothers and sisters, Christmas is coming. But it's 2023. So as it stands for us, Christmas has come roughly 2,023 years ago. Christmas has come. So we're, we're this new covenant people who now have the advantage of being able to actually look into the new covenant and see what is this deal that God has made with his people. And if we want to know how is it that God can deliver people from their sin without clearing them of their guilt, without sweeping it under the rug, he's answered. He's answered emphatically. So Christmas has already come. Let's look and see in Romans chapter 3. As you turn to the book of Romans, don't worry, this is the last time you'll have to turn. Your fingers will get a break. We'll hang out here for the rest of our time together. As you turn there, I just want to summarize what's going on in Romans. We haven't spent a ton of time in Romans. But Romans is a letter of Paul, which is essentially a missionary support letter. Like Paul is trying to get the people, the Christians of Rome, to help him get to Spain so that he can take the gospel there. It's never been proclaimed there. That's what he wants to do. And so he does what any good missionary would do in his missionary support letter. He lays out really clearly, he starts by laying out really clearly, like, hey, here's what I believe. Like, here's this gospel that I've taken my stand on that I want to go to these lost people and preach. Let me define it really clearly for you. And so Paul starts out, he spends the first chapter in the second chapter in the first 18 verses of the third chapter establishing a fact that the whole world stands condemned before God. We're sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God. That's his message. That's what he he says. He wants you to know. He wants them to know the Gentiles and the Jews and everybody else. There's a God who's created the world and he's holy and he's just and he's righteous and you're not. Which is a problem because you're going to have to give an account to him. And you will not be able to do it. We just read in Psalm 76, you will not be able to stand before him in your own strength. That's how he starts this thing off. You say, well, Thomas, that's not new. You share the gospel like that every week. That's how you always start off by sharing the gospel. Right, because I'm just trying to copy these people. I'm just trying to copy 
The apostles, preaching is much more about plagiarism than invention. I promise you that. So look, the whole world's condemned before God. That's the, the point. If you don't believe me, I'll just tie it in right here for you. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. You get a little summary statement before we go any further. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that, like here's the point, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law has spoken, and what the law did is it stopped every mouth. It, it removed every excuse. Every out that we could find, every back door we might try to slip through is covered. Like the law has said, you can't do it. You can't be saved by yourself because you're a sinner and you're a sinner who's accountable to God. And I can say that, brothers and sisters, to you right here, right now, really clearly, because you're part of this group, because the group is, verse 19, the whole world. He's not made an exception for Americans or for Southerners or for people who go to Grace Chapel Baptist Church. Like, we're sinners. The whole world is accountable to God and stands condemned before him. Verse 20, and unless you think you're getting out of it, by works of the law, no human being will be justified or counted righteous in his sight. Can't do it because here's what the law does. Through the law comes a knowledge of sin. The law has shown you you're a sinner. And so this is where we stand. we got to ask the question one more time. How? How is it? that we're going to be delivered from our sin. How could me and you ever be delivered from our sin? Because we're part of this whole world that stands condemned before God. How is God going to deliver us from our sin? How is God going to do that without clearness of our guilt? Because he said he wouldn't do that. So here's, here's the answer. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, the explanation of the new covenant. But now, in the new covenant, this new deal that God has cut with his people in the new covenant, the righteousness of God, which means the ability of God to declare you a sinner righteous. His ability to do that, the righteousness of God, has been manifested or revealed or shown or demonstrated apart from the law. It's not in the law. It's not in the old covenant. It's in the new covenant covenant. And here's how it works. The, the law told you it was coming, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So they, they told you it was on the way, but it's not the law. How does it work? Verse 22. The righteousness of God, the ability of God to declare a sinner righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. It hangs on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what I told you the answer was going to be, right? That's what you told me the answer was going to be when you said that stuff about how you've been to Sunday school before. That's what you said. You heard it, okay? You know the new covenant hangs on Jesus. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That, like, this is how you can be delivered for your sin. Who is this for? Like, who is this available to? For all who believe. So for Anybody ever who would put their trust in Jesus, they can be made a new covenant believer because of what he's done. You can be forgiven of your sins through Jesus, and you will be forgiven of your sins if you put your faith and trust in 
Jesus. For there's, there's no distinction. This is, this is why it doesn't matter who you are. This is why it's for anybody who believes. Because the point of Romans so far is we don't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile. There's no distinction. Why is there no distinction? Paul, tell me, could you just answer that question for me? For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. So this is why nobody cares who your mama is or nobody cares who your daddy is or nobody cares what bloodline you're descended from or nobody cares how much time you spent in church when you were a kid or nobody cares what you, what you did when you were an unbeliever. That's not the point. You're all condemned. You've sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God. We're all equal before Christ. God shows no partiality. No distinction. All have sinned. And, verse 24, are justified, are declared righteous, are counted righteous, are forgiven of their sins by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there's your answer. Your answer is Jesus. You told me it would be Jesus. I told you it would be Jesus. We're all in agreement here. It's Jesus. You can be forgiven of your sin. Because of Jesus, on account of Jesus, that's your answer. But the problem is, that's not exactly the question we're trying to answer. Because the question we're trying to answer is how? How can I be delivered from my sin without God clearing me of my guilt? God, if you're a God who will by no means clear the guilty, who will by no means sweep the sins of these people under the rug, like, God, if that's who you are, how can I, a sinner, someone who's part of the whole world, how can I be delivered from my sin? We have not answered that question yet. So let's answer that question. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There's the answer to your question. How is it that I can be delivered from my sin without God clearing me of my guilt? The answer in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, is God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. Thomas, that's a big, fancy theological word. My Bible translation doesn't even say that. Why does yours say that? Because that's the word. That's why mine says that. And the word means that he's not just a, a sacrifice who takes away sin. He's a sacrifice who takes the wrath of God. God did not clear our guilt. God did not sweep our sin under the rug. God did not forget that he had wrath towards our sin. God did not forget that because we're sinners, no one can stand before us. He remembered that. He remembered that vividly, and he looked on Jesus and said, here you go. You take the sin. You take the wrath. I hate Thomas Broom's sin. You take it. I hate the sin of every person at Grace Chapel Baptist Church, and I'm going to dump it on Jesus. No sin's getting cleared here. No, no sin's being swept under the rug here. Jesus is, is taking it. The new covenant is built on the fact that God can forgive sin because he hasn't cleared guilt. He, in the new covenant, he's taken our guilt, and he's transferred it to Jesus. 
him in our place. So you can be saved, you can be forgiven, you can be delivered from your sin because praise be to God, Jesus has dealt with sin. And yeah, you are guilty, but the good news is Jesus has dealt with guilt. He's absorbed it, he's taken it, he's been put forward as a propitiation and he's done that by his blood. God sent Jesus, born of a virgin, in this little town called Bethlehem and he sent him for an express purpose so that he would live in our place and that he would die in our place. He would earn the righteousness that we so desperately need and he would pay for our sin so that the wrath of God doesn't abide on me and you anymore. It was transferred to him. And the promise of the New Testament is that this exchange that happened on the cross worked. You know why we know it worked? Because of the tomb. Because when they went to look for him on Sunday morning, he wasn't there. He paid for it. Death couldn't hold him. Death, where's your sting at? Jesus has no more sin to be held accountable for. He has none and he's paid for ours, which means he gets to walk. It worked. The exchange worked. Jesus in my place worked because Jesus lives. That's the promise of the new covenant. But now, uh, here's what you're going to have to answer. Are you a new covenant believer or no? Because the sentence continues. Like, the sentence isn't over. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has not taken the wrath of God towards people who don't believe in him. If you will not receive Jesus by faith, the wrath of God will abide on you. The new covenant is for a repenting, believing people who stop trusting in them and start trusting in God. And so if you have not received the person and work of Jesus by faith, if you don't belong to this new covenant, if the law of God hasn't been written on your hearts, you're still in this precarious position where you're not going to be able to stand before God. You don't have a mediator. You don't have anybody to help. You don't have an advocate to stand between you and God. You're going to stand before him in your sin. And this is not just some new novel thing. Like, this is for all people ever. Like, this isn't like there's a back door somewhere else for you to go look for another way of deliverance. This is the only way of deliverance. This is it. And Paul wants you to know that really clearly because he, can, he continues this God putting Jesus forward as a propitiation to be received by faith was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just and has the ability to justify the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is not, again, a newfangled thing. It's a once-for-all-time thing. And God's put Jesus forward to take his wrath towards sin because he's passed over former sins. So here's what that means. Here's what, here's what he just said. Abraham was a sinner. Abraham deserved to go to hell. And God did not condemn Abraham to hell. But he counted him righteous. He accredited to him righteousness. This prophet, a guy named Moses, he was a sinner. 
He deserved to go to hell. But God did not condemn him. He credited in him righteousness. He counted him righteous. David, this big king guy, he was a sinner, big time sinner. He deserved to go to hell. And God did not condemn him to hell. But God credited him with righteousness. He, he counted him righteous. How's that work? Because Christmas is coming. And God knows Christmas is coming. God knows that he's sending the Lord Jesus to be a propitiation for our sin. And not just our sin, but the sin of all, any who would ever trust in him has been fully and finally dealt with in the Lord Jesus. Which means this doesn't work any differently for you. You're part of the whole world. The whole world that stands accountable to God with every excuse, every back door cut off in you, verse 20, will not be saved by works of the law. Works of God's law or works of your own law that you invent. You invent a checklist and think you do a really good job and you're going to heaven. God says, not happening. You are a sinner. You deserve to go to hell. You don't have to be condemned. You can be counted righteous. You can have the righteousness of Jesus accredited to you because God put Jesus forward as a propitiation in his, in his blood to be received by faith. This is for a new covenant people. This is for a people, a repenting, believing, trusting in Christ type people. That's what the Lord has done and that's how Jesus is the Prince of Peace for these people. You can be delivered from your sin, spared from the wrath of God because God put Jesus forward in your place to cover your sin, to pay for your righteousness and to take his wrath towards your sin. That's how Jesus is the Prince of Peace in the New Covenant. The question is, are you in it? Pray with me. Oh Lord, we do thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you've made it plain and clear how it is we can have a relationship with you. It's not by us, it's by you. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to live and to die in our place and to rise in our place to show that it worked and to give us hope of the coming salvation. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Make us excited in him. Make us a people who know even right now in our hearts as we wait on Christmas to come. Christmas already has come and the Lord Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile us as sinners to you. Lord, I pray right now for those who trust you in this room this morning that you would cause us to know even at a deeper level what is the, the mystery of the knowledge of Christ. Lord, that you would make us wise to your ways of salvation. Lord, that you would cause us to love Jesus more so that we'd walk in a manner worthy of him. And Lord, if there are those who've come here this morning who don't know you, who, who've never experienced the, the, the transfer from, of their guilt from them to Jesus and the transfer of Jesus' righteousness from him to us, Lord, I pray that you would make that happen even right now, this morning, very simply by the power of your spirit based on your authoritative word. Lord, work in our midst this morning, even right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'll be down at the front with you guys, worshiping on the front row. If there's anything you'd like to pray with me about or talk to me about, you're happy to do that. Uh, we're going to have our hymn of response at this time.